And Savile is just one huge, bizarre anomaly. Uh, this guy, was he was connected, and he, he, he was just clever at what he did. I'm surprised no one put a bullet in him, to be honest. I'm so surprised. And he said that he's almost certain that Savile was what they call an asset, an informant, a paid informant for the intelligence services. There is uh, part of this pyramid of power. There is a rank called the Fixer. And their job would be to go out, procure children for this machine. When I was part of Scotland Yard's Vice Unit, we would raid brothels. And different areas of London, they had a different demographic. So so the brothels catered for, for that clientele men would just come in and he said some are vicars some of this and uncle jimmy as he termed him would come in with all different boys mainly very young age he said uh i, I didn't want to i didn't want to kill her i didn't want to kill her and this is where he blames god and he looked up and he something like master told me to do it and i'm thinking is that master or was that Savile telling him to do it? He knew of people high up in the clergy that were involved, uh, not just in in the abuse of children, I think also the murder. He seemed untouchable and it just, it seems to me that he was a fixer. He was a, 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 a pimp extraordinaire. Here we go. It is John Wedger part. I can't even remember. There's been so many parts. And he's done a series with Ron Swanson on the channel as well. Huge thank you to John for spending so much time with us. He's been a friend of the channel for years. His mission, tip of the spear stuff, coming from the cops, whistleblower. Many of you are familiar with his backstory. His links are in the description box for his socials, his TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. And he's also got a book out now as well. But it's the Savile Week. You are watching it on the BBC right now, The Reckoning. We had two episodes out, and we're going to focus on Jimmy Savile in this particular episode. So, a huge thank you for John for coming on. Pleasure. And you were telling me that there's a theory that Savile was intelligence. Yeah, his name will come to me. First name's Tony. He's a he's a journalist, a professional journalist. I think he worked for one of the mainstream uh, TV companies, and he had a fantastic uh, theory. I, I've done interviews with this guy. Uh, but he did an interview and he said that he's almost certain that Savile was what they call an asset, an informant, a paid informant for the intelligence services. Now, as soon as I heard that, I went, that, that would explain everything. For me, as an ex-detective who worked for many years with, well, actually most of my investigative career with informants, and then I did it on more of a, a specialised basis for a little while as well, and so I know how the system works, how informants are recruited. They all come from the criminal classes that, you know, if not, then just call crime stoppers. Right. And, and uh, you have to give information which is equal to or greater than the crimes you are committing. Right. Uh, so Savile, in doing what he's doing or, or what he did, that would make sense. Because in my opinion, the guy, the fix it, what was... Um, 
a, a double edged thing, a double entendre, whatever it was, you know, okay, there was this uh, outward thing where it was his his program type and all that. But I myself I think this guy was a very sinister individual that, that had his claws in Satanism. Uh, part of the thing when it comes to any sort of ritual abuse is the need for blood. It's all based on the blood. The life and death is in the blood. And uh, as well as the, the, the sacrifice of children, they also need children for abuse because them minor attractive persons uh, that, that, that sort of get involved in, in these things, you know, there is a, a, an insatiable need. So fix it would be that he, in the whole hierarchy of ritualistic, the ritualistic world, there is uh, part of this pyramid of power. There is a rank called the fixer and their job would be to go out, procure children for this machine. uh, And that's what they do. So I think that that was his job. And in doing so, um, he knew who was doing what. And that's very, very powerful information to have. And that's very powerful information for the intelligence services to have, especially when you, you have got diplomats coming over here, businessmen. It's, you know, so you have espionage, political espionage, uh, which can unstable a country monumentally. Um, and it's all about brownie points. But also, you know, there's business espionage, you know, there's fiscal espionage. And I, I um, knew a guy, I used to do a bit of work for him, he was uh, in the SBS, this guy. And when I was in trouble with money, I would go and work for this fella. I'll sort of leave it at that, really. And I would do bits and pieces for him. And his specialisation was this um, business espionage, uh, especially around people involved with the oil industry and things like that. And it would be to spy on these people, find out what they're into, what they're up against, give that information to the other side, you know, and... It's always a weakness, and they play on a weakness. Uh, so, in respect to um, Savile being an asset for the intelligence services, that, for me, that would work. So, he, in, in one of the documentaries, the, the, uh, probably one of the best documentaries I've seen about this guy, they interview his nephew. And his nephew says, Jimmy didn't catch me, I caught Jimmy. Now, his nephew ran away to London, and he went to, to Euston, which was a pickup point. Now, if we go back to a guy called James Reeves, who gives an interview, I interviewed James Reeves, he was in a kid's home out in uh, Essex. I think it might have been the kid's home that was um, that, uh, based on the film Big Boys Don't Cry that's just come out. Uh, and I remember the in- police inquiry into this. Now... James was saying that he uh, was terribly, terribly abused in his home. It was sadistic. Not Elm Guesthouse. No, no, no. This was out, I think, in Hornchurch, Essex, out that way. Um, and James, what they would do is when these kids reached 15 years old, back then they would just throw them out. They're of no use to them. There's no funding anymore. And they're getting past a sell-by date for, for the sort of sadistic abuse. Um not to make it too much about him, but he, he told me something which really shook me. Um, and he said, and this, this shows how sadistic and organised abuse was. So I think he went in there as an infant and he, he endured, I think, a decade of, of horrific abuse. And he said, 
every evening after dinner, whatever, they had a sports hall. And it was, it was a mixed co-ed, um, kids home. So they had the girls and the boys, which is quite unusual. And it was run by the headmistress. Um, they used to call them aunties and uncles to make it homely, but it wasn't. And he said that the headmistress would put up two chairs in the hall. The girls had to come in. So they were from infant school up until uh, teenagers. So there's all stages of puberty and development in these kids. They had to stand along uh, the, the the main window in the sports hall looking inwards. The boys then had to line up, but the boys had to line up naked from six years old up to 16 years old. And they had to then proceed in an orderly fashion, line up, and they would be brought in in front of all the girls and the matron would sit there with a large wooden uh, paddle-type brush and spank their bare asses every single day. They would be naked. I mean, how twisted and sick is that? You, you know, you try and get that in your mindset. And not only that, it's overt. So in a school, which would be uh, absolutely awash with staff, and back back then in them days, not like now, everything is on a budget, got to justify your, your your sort of fiscal existence back then it wasn't people had stupid jobs you know and and they were paid for them uh so there have been so many staff overtly doing this and you think how did they get away with it but james and a few of the others ran away and the meeting point for these kids uh was euston station euston station and he said every christmas he goes down and he lays uh, a reef by what used to be the the public waiting room at Euston Station. And he said, that's for my friends, because one night I was meant to meet them because they were rent boys. They were going out and working themselves. And he was ill, couldn't make it. And they said, we're going to a party. And they were never seen again. Five of them, never seen again. And and he just said, but there was always rumours of a guy in a white Rolls Royce. No, Savile used to drive a white Rolls Royce. So... Savile, according to his nephew, his his nephew ran away, ended up at Euston Station. Savile gets picked up. He gets picked up by by Savile, you know, or or he turns out anyway. Savile was linked in with the boys at Euston, and he takes him to a flat nearby in Kings Cross, and then he just said, then over a period of weeks or, or however long is there, um, men would just come in, and he said some are vicars, some of this and. Uncle Jimmy, as he termed him, would come in with all different boys, mainly very young age. And he said they were really young and they would just be brought in for these. And he said sometimes they would be in these rooms with these men for days, days, little tiny boys and priests. You know, what what it does it for me, Sean, is I, I try and put myself in that room mentally and thinking these are priests. These are men that are going to go and give communion they didn't give absolution of sins to people. They're going to be uh, pastoral roles for the community. They're going to give talks to, you know, they're going to deal with emotional issues and all that with, with their congregation. And they're doing this to young boys. And it, it's alarming. And, and Jimmy Savile was bringing these kids, bringing these kids. Um, he seemed untouchable. And it just, it seems to me that he was a fixer. He was a a, a, a pimp extraordinaire. He knew who wanted what, and he knew to feed them. So 
if we start looking, there's a brilliant book. I always allude to it. It's called The Poisoned Bowl. I will, next time I'm here, I'll bring it in. And, and it describes to a T the public school system of the United Kingdom. And it, it, it focuses, I think, on Radley College, uh, Eton, Winchester, this sort of elite fee-paying. Uh, the rest of the world call them private schools. We call them public schools due to the Public School Act, which has to allow... Uh, children from impoverished backgrounds access. So no matter what background, you, you can always go to Cambridge. You can always, hence our democratic so-called fair system. But in reality, it doesn't really happen, you know. Um, but it looks on, on why it produced uh, the people it produced and why the allegations that, that have been met out against these places, you know, what is the justification? And what, what, what the conclusion of this is that the the education system is based on the uh, the Greco Roman gladiatorial school system. It's exactly the same, beatings and very important because it's it's one way. Is that an allowed one? Is it? It's one way of uh, causing um, people to to succumb and to break their will. It's well been well known in torture and things like that. It causes acquiescence, so it causes that compliance. It also, it's it's a so you know, it's a, so it destroys that element of, of the person, the soul, and everything else. And when it's done by a member of their own sex, there there's that element of demasculation and shame. And the beatings, well, if you beat anything, you're going to toughen it up, but you're going to damage it at the same time. Now, I always remember when I was part of Scotland Yard's Vice Unit. We would raid brothels and different areas of London, they had a different demographic. So, so the brothels catered for, for that clientele. Um, so for instance, if you went to Earl's Court, you would get gay brothels. Um, and then if you went around Paddington, they would be more your straight working class brothels. But one of the areas was Bayswater. And Mayfair, they were very upmarket, very, very upmarket, big mansion type flats. And we raided one and it was just off, I think, South Orderly Street, which is sort of round by Grosvenor Square, just off Park Lane, that sort of area. So we're talking top, top prime real estate there. And what we would do is uh, one would go, one of the team would go in as a potential customer. And then once they were through the door, the whistle would go in and everyone would bomb burst in and, and, and just steam all through the building. And we did this one. We got through the door and off we went and we kicked, kicked open this door. And there was this fellow there uh, and he was obviously like a city gent, very well spoken. And he was, he was in a suit or partially dressed, but he was bent over being spanked with a cane. Right. It was a fellow in his fifties, maybe by, by this prostitute, whatever dominatrix, whatever. I don't know. And she was cleaning this guy. And he said in the most plummiest sort of old Italian voice, he said, my God, officers, am I in trouble? And, and my sergeant went, get your trousers on and f*** off. It was a bit, bit like a scene from the Sweeney. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he's trying to run and pull his trousers up and get out of the building as quick as he can. Um, but it was interesting because you're thinking, he's posh and... The Canaan thing, and if you look at the the Richard Curtis comedies like the Black Adders and that, they always allude to 
uh, take a uh, crumpet up the rear without blubbing. It's alluding to, to, to you know, and six of the best trousers down. It's always that posh boy, you know, me census, don't talk me a thing or two. So they always allude to that sort of, you know, behaviour. And, and it's normalising. Now, um, I can remember talking with, with Corinne about this. Um, what is it about these posh uh, upper-class lot and, and canings and that? And she said something interesting. She said they're placed into an environment in which these these uh, horrific things are done to them. And it is horrific, a grown man caning a young boy's bottom. I mean, it must do a severe amount of damage for one. I mean, if that was done now, I mean, that would be borderline GBH. You know, that would be a prison job. Um, but the child's not in control. But they revisit it as an adult and they, they are now in control. And it's a bit like that, hurt people, hurt people. They have to bring about that misery in others, but they're perpetrating it. Domestic violence is another one. Domestic violence perpetrators are very, very similar in which they only feel normal when they're creating that misery that they once were in and when everyone else around them is in. So it, it, there is that psychology um, sort of in that thing. But coming back to that, it's it's that need for that sort of behaviour to continue, which would explain the need for young boys. Or And, and bear in mind, you know, so many members of our, our so-called cabinet have been through this system. And, you know, and if then they go on, divested from their mother at a very early age so no sort of matriarchal love put into this very strict military style strict uh masculine environment where discipline is harsh uh they have what they call the system where the older boys you know they have governance over the well-being and the discipline of the younger boys we've got teenage boys and what do teenage boys do? I mean, this might sound vernacular, but they that 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 is it until they're in their thirties, you know. And when you, especially when you say this to um uh to women who've got teenage boys, they they can't stand it. No, 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 it doesn't happen. Well, that's a reality. It's called testosterone, you know. That's what goes on. Yeah, and of course, so that that first sexual experience of that young boy will be will be that will will be some sort of sexual assault. And again, what happens is they then. As much as they hate it, they go on to perpetrate on others, which is how bullying works. And the whole thing, and of course you can't go anywhere because they won't, they won't allow it. Uh, there, there's a book, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was written by the son of Lord Bewley. He wrote a book. Um, his name will come to me in a minute. I, I knew the guy quite well. And he sort of goes on about his time in Eton. And he said the system in Eton. He's written a book, so this is all public domain. We're not going into any libelous ground here. And he said uh, that the system in Eton is nothing more than a rent boy racket. And he was uh, um, by the older boys. He went and complained about it to to the, the the dean or the don or whatever they call it. And he said that you know this guy caned him so hard, took a run up. At him. He was something like nine years old, and he said it was like being hit with, with red hot wire. Um, and then he put him under the the pupillage of a monsignor uh, as a one to one thing, and he just got by the, you know also by, by this guy. So you know, so where do you go? Where do you go? Uh, 
you know you've got no one to turn to so so it's damaging these people and and i think savile's job was was to cater for these people's needs he found a niche you're talking about someone with a very very high iq you know he'd made himself he was just a pimp really i think that's what he was and then but then he started to specialize and he knew how to manipulate people get them what they want get them what they want and of course what happens is when when you know things go wrong you're in trouble you know you're in a world of trouble um but then he's catering for i would have said these you know like these vicars and bringing young boys to them and you know how high up does that go we we saw it with bishop peter ball who was the best friend of prince charles again nothing liable said this is public knowledge and this came out in the independent inquiry and they approached charles for a statement and he refused to give one and he'd come under heavy criticism of that uh, you know and uh, bishop ball was in boys and he got and he did get convicted of assault and one one of the boys went on the bbc did a documentary of it and um one of his victims went on to commit suicide and his father runs his campaign to this day uh, to why did, you know, the Church of England cover this up? But if you've got that information on someone, you're going to use it. You, you know, I mean, even Putin has turned around and criticised, you know, the Western uh, higher-ups within the political uh, forum of being... He, he said it. He said, you know, the British and the American government are, are full of... So when you've when you've got someone that high up doing that, then it's got clout. And I think he just fine-tuned it, really did. He knew, but he was a pervert himself. Uh, there, there was, I mean, I think within the first year, 453 victims came forward. I mean, I've spoken to victims of him. I've spoken to ones that have been in the hospital and, um, my son was in Stoke Mandeville Hospital and of course when he had it built there's this uh, quote from Jimmy Savile it mentions God on it because he was uh, proclaims to have been a, a good Catholic but I mean what does that mean you know we've seen some of what goes on in that in that sort of environment but again there's all pictures of him um, after his uh, his sort of um, post-mortem exposure there, there is not one trace of this guy in that hospital. Not one trace. Every bit that's to do with him has been removed. Removed. And I can always remember watching, is it Janet Cope, his his PA, who worked with him for 30 years, who just has this weird denial that anything went on. I don't believe her. I do not believe her. She seems very uptight and uncomfortable when she's being interviewed. You know that is not someone I think is 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 uh, uh, ignorant of his goings on. I'm not saying she had uh, anything to do, but I, th- I I I can safely bet everything I own on the fact that she knew. She knew. Look, if the average man in the street knew, then then she she knew. I don't, did you, was it was it? This is your life. He was on twice. I think. Yeah, he was on there. Yeah, and they said to him. We were going to get your secretary on, but you wouldn't let us. Yeah, yeah. And then he's he's talking about yeah, well, she's not allowed to grass and all this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew Marr, uh, Andrew Neil, sorry, Andrew Neil was very, very dubious of him. That the one that really, really jars me, and and I'm really not happy with it. I loved the documentary, but I'm not happy with what went on afterwards. Was when Louis met Jimmy. 
Now, Louis Farouk's no fool. This is an intelligent guy. Um, I used to quote him when I used to um, uh, teach interview skills. He has got one of the best MOs of interviewing I've ever seen. He relies on ignorance and stupidity to get what he wants. He he puts himself so far down on the intellectual hierarchy than the people he's interviewing that, especially with narcissistic people, they can't help themselves. And and a lot of sex offenders are not very narcissistic because it's a very selfish way of living. And they 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 tend to talk because they have to talk because they're narcissistic and they think they're cleverer than you. Um, and he would put himself so low down and be so ignorant that they all thought they were one up and they didn't see him as a threat. So he never really got near to being insulted or anything. He's an investigative journalist for the BBC. Everyone knew what was going on. He accosts Jimmy Savile on the train, on the inner city train, and brings this thing up about him potentially being a... So he's even broached this topic. By the end of that um, documentary... Jimmy Savile is totally and utterly coercively manipulating that guy. You can see it. He is, he's, it's like he's got his hand up his jacksy and he's, it's frightening to watch. The next second one, he's, he's even saying, Jimmy comes to stay at my place. He's become a frequent visitor. And I'm thinking, and then, of course, it comes out and now he's running for sure. Oh, I didn't know any interviews a victim survivor of Savile. And the one thing, with, with victims and survivors, is this really, really strange statistic about people that have been victims of abuse. And uh, there was a study done on it. And it's that they've got clairvoyant ability. And that comes from hyper-awareness. They are like foxes. There's a difference between a dog and a fox. You know, a fox is wily. It's tr- it knows, it's tricky. It's, it's They're always on alert. And what you'll find with people that have been in these institutions, always on alert, always on high alert, constantly. And, and they found that they have got these, these, you know, this sixth sense, whatever it might be, you know, uh, and it's, it's just in them because they're, and they're, they interviewed one of the, the victims and she turns around and she said, oh, to Louis, oh, come on, Louis, you're telling me you didn't know. And she's not having one bit of it. And she really fronts him out. She is not, because he's, he's coming, the guilty party. He's, we used to call it in the police, Operation Stable Door. He's doing crisis management. He's doing damage limitation. And that's what we see all the time. Always trying to, well, yeah, well, I didn't know. No, no, it's a lie. I'm not, I don't believe it for one minute. And again, you see, he's very uncomfortable, Louis Farouk. Very confident in the first one. But he's met his match with Jimmy Savile. Without a doubt, he met his match with Jimmy Savile. Jimmy Savile just totally and utterly outwitted him. Uh, you know, it was like a master chess player playing someone who's rubbish at drafts. That was, and by the end of it, it's it's a brilliant documentary to watch. People can't even watch it, though. They've just scrubbed it, haven't they? Yeah, a lot of them, they they, they get rid of. There's, I, I mention this one a lot when I when I do stuff with, with Ron on our crime theories uh, things. Uh, Channel 4 had a brilliant trilogy called Red Riding Red Riding and it was all about uh, murders in Yorkshire West Yorkshire Yorkshire Ripper case and everything else and it alludes to Savile so much in there and he cropped up in that so many times so many times Um, I have a theory and it came out of um, 
his relationship with Peter Sutcliffe. Bear in mind, one of the bodies was found in Alderhay Park, where Savile's got a residence in the flats in Alderhay Park. Overlooking the grass, isn't it? Everything, yeah. And the body was found there. And I think one of them didn't match the profile of... And, and Sutcliffe, when he's interviewed, he said, uh, I, I didn't want to kill it. I didn't want to kill it. And this is where he blames God. And he looked up and he something like, Master told me to do it. And I'm thinking, is that Master? Or was that Savile telling him to do it? And, I, and bear in mind their relationship, you know, the proximity of where they both lived. I, I, I think that was a, a joint venture. And what, that was Savile. What do you know about the relationship? How did it start? I don't know where where its inception was. I know that when he was in Broadmoor, that connection was there. Uh, but, I mean, even when you look at the case of Leslie Mulseed, the girl that went missing and was murdered, and they stitched up this bloke called Stefan Kitschko for it. You know, when you look at the bigger um, social circle or of of the offenders in that case... There's links to there's a links to a guy called Casson, who's got links to Savile, you know, and then the um the guy who screwed up the Leslie Mold seed inquiry, uh also then went on to take on the Ripper inquiry and screwed that up. Without a doubt the Mold seed had links to Because um, there's a theory that the victim's corpse was left near Savile's where he lived as like an offering to him. Yep, yep. Uh, I would go along with that. Um, there's that picture of him with this bizarre religious regalia on, where he's sort of grandstanding dressed as this weird wizard. Uh, you know that there were allegations that he is involved in ritual. You know he was invo- he was some sort of weird wizard, he, and he worked in morgues, and he he was just uh, he was born, wasn't he? Born on, on Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, the almost died child. on Halloween as well. He died on the 29th of October, 2011, aged 84. Wow. And how did he get away with it? Um, um, and everyone said, what a creepy, creepy looking man. So how Janet Cope never, it's, it's all too convenient. And you see this all the time. Whenever, ever someone's in trouble, everyone's gone, 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 gone. We've just seen it with, with the Andrew Tate thing. You know, when he gets arrested, everyone's like, you know, Tate's innocent, he's been stitched up. But now it's getting hot for him. It's getting heavy for him. He's looking at losing everything he's got and more. It's all gone quiet. You know, you have people like Piers Morgan standing up for him. Who's that other girl who's always mouthing off? Um, what's her name? The uh, the journalist, the um, the glasses, blonde hair. She's Casey very outspoken. Uh, sorry? Casey Hopkins. Yeah, her. Again, they all go quiet. When, when it starts getting really, really hot, mm-hmm. it all goes quiet. Um... And of course, that's because the intelligence services are involved. You know, you can sort of outsmart the police. There's nothing really tricky in them anymore. That the days when I was in there, when they were a force to be reckoned with, and they now I think anyone who's who's a, a serious and organised criminal has got to be stupid to end up getting arrested because I can't see where. Mm-hmm. What's your resistance? There is none. They're, they're, they're just inept now. You know, going back to what something you said earlier, then John, because this is extremely fascinating about him being having a quid pro quo of intelligence. Because so you said that if his crime is less than the crimes pertaining to the information he's given, that is the bar for this. So you know, most normal people 
view adults attracted to kids as the most serious crime. Yeah, yeah. So what you are you inferring then that the people that would have hired him would have viewed that as a, as a, not a serious crime? Yeah, yeah which would it's then, inverted, which would then uh, indicate that would that would infer that we're not dealing with the police; we're dealing with intelligence services, uh, but because. You know, stuff involving the, the children would be a civilian policing. However, if it starts then crossing over into the political realm, look, we, this has come out. We saw this with the Elm Guest House. We saw this with Kinkora. Well, yeah, um, we just interviewed Richard Kerr again. I think he's coming on again soon. Just touching on what you said earlier about missing boys. He was telling us he went down to the room where they had the bed and the table and the saw. Yeah. And he's doing what he's doing to this day. Not because they've offered him money to shut up. Yeah, of course they would have done. In honour of the boys. Yeah, yeah. I know Richard and I know his brother. Um, and, and of course, he's, it's taken its toll on him from what he's been through. Brave, brave guy. Brave, brave guy. I, I, I'm going to be doing uh, a documentary with Ron about a missing boy. Uh, from from that same sort of environment, um, and we've got some startling information about that. The intelligence services were involved in this in the cover up. You've only got to look at the testimony of an intelligence officer called Colin Wallace, was on a, a, a special military intelligence unit called the IVR, um, and it, it goes on about ritualistic as well in there. Uh, but it, it's mainly to do with um, the boys and those involved in the political realm that were abusing these kids. Brownie points for for the for the Protestant movement uh, and everything else. And of course, Colin spoke up and he said, "Look," and he went to, to the intelligence services MI five and he said, "You you need." to look at what's happening in his home what's happening to these boys needs to stop because there were people of political influence going in there and were, were damaging and hurting these children and the next thing colin um is arrested for murder of a guy right they said he karate chopped a man and the man died and he served 10 years 10 what? years 10 years in prison for it you know, and he was, um, he said the, the prisoners protect him because they knew he was innocent, you know. Um, I knew a guy that became good friends. It was either at Greenock or it was Sopton Prison in Scotland with Abdel El Magrahi. Um, this guy knew him through the mosque and, and become good friends. And this guy said to me, John, he never, he never ever had anything to do with that. He was an informant for the intelligence services. He said, like I do with you, he was doing for the government and he knew too much and they did this to him. So there's nothing they can't do. They've got no complaints procedure. It's a bit like customs excise. Never used to have a complaints. The police had an accountability, whether that was of any use, but it still had it. And every now and then a couple would get done years for years. Um, customs excise had no, you know, they could empty someone's bag, smash the person around the head, tell them to F off. And there was nothing anyone could do about it. And they did do that. You know, and they could still, one of the biggest undercover cases was to do with um, customs and excise offices, you know, stealing huge amounts of whatever, you know, and it don't go anywhere. And and they've been caught out for the misuse of, of um, informants and, and quite a few big trials have collapsed because of, of their dirty tricks around informants. So if you think they can do that, well, what would the intelligence services be doing it? 
And what, this is what, where, what kind of information would Savile be providing? I, I think he knew of people high up in the clergy that were involved, uh, not just in in the abuse of children. I think also the murder, the rich children. Um, I've had information about members very high up in our establishment families. I'll, I'll call it that. That were involved in. Um, we even had it officially mentioned about people like Ted Heath. Uh, again, if you look at the brave officer called Mike Veal, who exposed Ted Heath, and, and he said on Sky News that this guy is involved in SRA, right? And there was information to back that up. Um, yeah, and look, they destroyed Mike Veal. So they, they will, we're seeing this quite a bit, Sean, with, with whistleblowers. So we see it with Andrew Tate, uh, more recently with Russell Brand. They're giving information about a corrupt system. Now, on the other side of the whistleblower, and you've got myself, Maggie and Lenny Harper, and we spoke out about the children thing. Now, the reason we could speak out and, and dig our heels in the stand of ground because we were clean. Now, they did everything to, to destroy and demonise me, but I knew no matter what they had, it wasn't enough to ever do any real damage to me because I hadn't done it. They'd have to come up with, uh, they'd have to lie, they'd have to take it too far and lie. But if you, this is why you get silence, right? And this is the conspiracy of silence. Because if you have been dirty, you best shut your mouth. And now if you look at uh, the Russell Brand saga, that you know, whether or not he's guilty is yet to be, be seen. My my argument with um with, with the Russell Brand thing is that why are people making these serious uh, assault allegations to a journalist? What's a journalist gonna do? Put a file together, go to the CPS, provide a uh, you know, um, a family liaison officer, a chaperone for court, you know, police no they're not, because that's not their remit. They're there to make money, and that's that. Uh, the mainstream media isn't what it once was. We used to have good, solid journalists, people like Roger Cook, who used to put programs out there of real importance. And they used to, at the same time, prior to the programs going out, they said a file's been sent to the Metropolitan Police, for example. He did a good one on Richard. He said the file has gone off to West Yorkshire Police or wherever it's gone. He doesn't do it afterwards. He did it before they've refused to comment. So he always puts that at the end of the programme. What they did with Russell Brand, it's not even, they hadn't even gone to that stage. So, but Russell Brand has spent his life in a very debauched manner. You know, he'd basically been sucking the devil's what's it all his, all his working career. Now he realises this world isn't a place that he wants to be part of, but he's made a fortune out of uh, this dirty world especially the dirty industry it was. He was married to a girl who was a self-proclaimed Satanist. I mean, Katy Perry come out with it that, that she'd sold her soul to, to the <laughs> devil. So, you know, Kel surprised. All of a sudden, you don't like it. What's that saying? Stop the ride, I want to get off. And my, my, my answer to Russell Brand is, it's too late, mate. <laughs> it's too late. What do you expect they're going to do to you? And a bit the same as Andrew Tate, when, you know, you've got all these disaffected young man think he's the next best thing to jesus 
but basically from what I can see of the guy, I mean, I don't really know him and I don't know what he does, but it seems a bit pimpy in my opinion. You know, it's very sort of sexually based, isn't it? And all of a sudden he's, he's saying, you know, the Matrix and this and that, well, mate, you've made money out of this perverted world. You know, don't moan when it all comes on you. And that's what makes these people different to the likes of Maggie, uh, Lenny and myself, whereas... You know, we generally did nothing wrong. And then we found, find this out by default. Um, and, you know, when you look at when Savile is interviewed by Surrey police, he basically bullies the female detective. He bullies her. I'll have your job. I'll have this. What is going on there? That's a case of what we call the tail wagging the dog. He's in control throughout. And this man is so confident. Now, does he know chief constables? Well, I'd say pretty much so. Didn't he have a thing called the Monday Club or the Friday Club or whatever it was called, where there would be senior officers from, from the Yorkshire Constabularies. They're called ridings, don't they? Because it's in three counties or something. And so they're all in on it. They're, they're all drinking from, like I say, the Devil's Bowl. And uh, so where do you go? You know, and then all of a sudden it, it comes out and you realise that there is a level above that, that, you know, but it, they can't contain it anymore. It, it, it floods out. So do you think he compromised Leeds cops at this club? 100%, 100%. I, uh, and I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He was, he was uh, a strategist. He was a master chess player in, in this, this dirty game, you know. And I think he had so much information on them. I mean, if we go back to Operation Countryman about the, the vice corruption in, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, I think that film Bank Job, you know, with Jason Statham sort of alludes to a lot of it. There was a superintendent called Jury who was just dirty as they come. And, uh, but the, the, the main, um, in Soho kept a record, kept a record. And I think Cynthia Payne did the same. She kept records of who was going in. Why would the intelligence services be interested in, in a brothel that was Elm Guesthouse? Why? It's a civilian policing. Why did D-notices get brought in? D-notices, like I've said so many times, are defence notices. They're, they're not a civilian tool. They're a tool of the intelligence services. And it came out of the First World War, loose lips sink ships. Winston Churchill brought in a D-notice to stop idle chat on buses because the enemy would hear about it what has a military tool got to do with civilian investigation well everything if you think that they cross over and i think these people if we go back to what we we said at the very beginning of this interview about these elite public schools well if they come there and they come there emotionally broken so if someone is abused in this manner and like i say taken away from the matriarchal environment some of them then go into places like sandhurst it's a brutal, 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 brutal. And if you did that to a dog, you couldn't stroke that dog. It would be too angry and twisted and it would take your hand off. And emotionally, this is what these people are, you know. Uh, and, and I think you see that in people like Cameron and Boris Johnson, that very similar personality traits of very dam emotionally damaged people. Educationally, they, they can succeed. They can go about their life, right? intellectually yeah that, and, and you see this in business so many broken people do very well in business because it needs that narcissistic i will achieve i uh, you know that gordon gecko you know uh 
whatever it is, you know, kindness is weakness sort of thing. Tramp on them, you know, F you, Jack, and all that sort of stuff. Greed is good. Yeah, greed is good and all that. But when you come to emotions, they're broken. They're children. They're, they're very they're, they're childlike. And Savile knew how to get in. Savile, in my opinion, uh, had a very bizarre, unhealthy relationship with his mother. I would say that probably crossed over into the sexual, I would say. Um, I would say if I was an interviewer and I had to interview him, uh, and if I was and if I was Louis Frew, I would have pushed home the mother thing constantly. I would not have stopped on that because that seemed to be his Achilles heel. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays. Check them out. Gear up for the season ahead with quality shades built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarised shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an rival product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn. Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And if you're into winter sports, the quick swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low light environments. And these shades hide a multitude of sins since having the little man. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they told us they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Were your Shady Rays with confidence because they have your back long after your purchase? If you don't love your Shady Rays, exchange for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop. The team always has your back with personal and fast support. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out an amazing deal for the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use code SEAN, S-H-A-U-N. For 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses, try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Yeah, let me just pause you there just to go over some of his early life. So, Savile, born at Consort Terrace in the Burley area of Leeds, West Riding of Yorkshire. Youngest of seven kids. And his parents, Vincent... um, Joseph Marie Savile, a bookmaker's clerk and insurance agent, and his wife, um, his paternal grandmother was Scottish, grew up during the Great Depression and claimed I was forged in the crucible of want, described his father as scrupulously honest but scrupulously broke, and Savile's mother believed he owed his life to the intercession of Margaret Sinclair, a Scottish nun, after he recovered quickly from illness, possibly pneumonia, at the age of two, when his mother prayed at Leeds Cathedral after picking up a pamphlet about St. Clair. Because he was, um, they thought he was going to die, didn't they, yeah, at yeah. that age? And, and they He's like the miracle child. They couldn't work out how he survived. And uh, apparently he went from critically ill one minute to full recovery the next. A very bizarre recovery. You know, I think he was offered up to to a god, but I think God had horns, you know. Savile went to St. Anne's Roman Catholic School in Leeds. After leaving school at the age of 14, he worked in an office. At the age of 18, during the Second World War, he was conscripted to work as a Bevin boy in the coal mines where he supposedly suffered spinal injuries from a shot fire's explosion. 
and he spent a long period recuperating wearing a steel corset and for three years walking with the aid of sticks. Following the colliery work, he became a scrap metal dealer and then he started playing records in dance halls in the early 1940s and claimed to be the first DJ. According to his autobiography, he was the first to use two turntables and a microphone at the Grand Records Ball at the Guard Bridge Hotel in 1947, although his claim may be untrue. Um, twin turntables were illustrated in the BBC Handbook in 1929 and advertised for sale in Gramophone magazine in 1931. So, you know, it's one thing, John, to be employed as an informant, like you said, and maybe to get to the level of intelligence services. But Savile got to the level of Margaret Thatcher, marriage guidance counselling for Diane Charles. Charles How does he go from being a Bevan boy in Leeds... Yeah. So hobnobbing with the most powerful well, people in the world, well, the Pope included. Well, well, a scrap metal dealer in the Great Depression, absolutely zero qualifications. What What was his law? What was it? And knowing that he wasn't a good-looking guy, there was nothing appealing about. He looked like death. He actually looked like death. What was it about him? And everyone around him didn't like him. It, really bizarre. When you when you watch uh, the documentary with Louis Farouk, I think that was the first time really that there was an insight into his world. Um, his friend comes around. They're all weird. They're all weird. They they look like the wrong ones. Oh, know? this is your life. They do, yeah. Yeah, you're minor attractive persons. And again, we see that with Gary Glitter. And and you know, once you understand how how this type of offender works, it starts making sense. It's, and the other thing we can't rule out, and it, and it has been mentioned, it's not just alluded to, it's been mentioned, was this guy was a Satanist. Now, secret societies are one thing, right? Satanism, well, I think they're the same thing anyway, uh, is something else, you know? Now, if this guy was, the power he would have. And I can always remember um, being, we, we used to have parade in in the police in the uniform uh, branch of it all. So in my early days, uh, we'd go and you'd, before you got sent out on patrol, the inspector would come in and the sergeants, it was very formal and you'd be giving your instructions and, and what to do. And one guy, he'd been transferred. There was a group that had been transferred from South London to, to the West End where I was at the time. And this one guy, they never really sort of told him what to do. He basically did what he wanted. And one of the other fellows said, well, he said, they're all in the same lodge. That's why they've come here. And he's actually in the chair. He's the grandmaster and he's above them. So you had this weird mix of, 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 of structure, you know, of authority. So in work, they could sort of get away with telling him about outside of work. He was in charge of them. Uh, and we got to simplify things. And I think that Satanism would explain as well as being an asset into, um, the intelligence services, um, and he would have known all the police officers and all that rec- all that level anyway. On top of that, I think this guy w- was very high up in Satanism, which would uh, answer why he would want to work with mentally ill people, because that would be fodder for all these things, and also that he would like being around dead people, you know, any mortuaries. Why would anyone? Any? I mean. I don't know if anyone's ever come across dead. You know, I spent half my career with dead people and they stink and it's a smell. You can never get out. Even now, if I, I was on the London Underground the other week and 
I remembered the smell of, 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 of a corpse and especially when you do autopsies and I started wanting to be sick. And it's the same when you see guys that recount about their time in the, in the Vietnam War and things like that and that you can see them reliving that horror of the smells and things like that. Why would you want to do that? It's, it's sickening, it's weird, it, it, it's depraved. And I think that, that theory, you know, I've spent probably as much time as any therapist who deals with victims and survivors of satanic ritual abuse. I've, I've probably interviewed as much as someone could do, you know. I've spent many protracted hours with survivors of, of this. Um, it is real, no matter whether people believe it or not, it's real and it's ancient and it goes on. And Savile is mentioned many, many times. Savile is mentioned many times. So I'm in in no uh, ambiguous mind that this guy was a very, very active Satanist. He procured children for these rituals, and that would take his protective status right to the top. So for me, that's that's pretty much answers why he he would get away with all of this, and uh, especially when you've got information on people. You know, there's been many trials. Um, I'm trying to think of the famous trial um, where where someone is in a world of trouble and they turn around and say, please, you need to get inspector so-and-so or superintendent so-and-so. And the whole case collapses because they're, they're, they're working for them, you know. And uh, it, it, it does work. It does work when you, you pull them, what they call get out of jail free cards. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. So, I mean, what kind of level of approval would you have to go through in security checks to be handed the keys to Broadmoor? I know, I know, by by Edwina Curry, by Edwina Curry, who then tried to get on a little rowboat and row for shore, saying that she didn't know. She she allowed it. Edwina Curry allowed it. Again, when you see, in my opinion, crocodile tears of Esther Ranson. And Esther Ranson is interesting because I don't like the woman anyway um, because I don't trust the, the child line thing. And, you know, I've got my own reasons for not, for not trusting that and watch some of my stuff and I sort of, I allude to that. Um, but but she does something really, really telling. She does this fake crying thing, which is always dubious anyway, especially on a pre-record. Um, and then her... her um, ownership of her liability changes from oh yeah i knew jimmy and then it's then she puts it in the plural she distances herself and puts it on us we all knew about him in hindsight we should have all done something i'm thinking get stuffed awina sod right off don't give it the we and put it down to us as a collective you know that that public guilt no you you and she does distance in language now if i was interviewing her that was one thing i would definitely definitely really harbor on that distance in language she goes from being the personal one-to-one taking ownership to the we straight away and i thought no you knew you knew you knew they all knew look you know we're all friends and if one of us had a liking for something, you'd all go out and have a drink. You'd know straight away. Whenever you were in a close environment, you'd say, look, he's, he's off to Thailand again, or he's doing this. You know. And whenever something goes, you know exactly who it is. Or you've always got in a group of woman eyes, aren't you? Someone's always chatting some someone's missus up and things like that. It would have been no secret, you know. Johnny Rotten even said he was the only one, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And then, again, look at look at him, you know. 
that they and then you've got to look at who then comes to 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 their aid and then who then attacks david bellamy did something when he he talks about um greenhouse gases the the green thing as being a con and after he did that speech he never worked for the BBC again. <laughs> uh, Marlon Brando did something when he went on about a religious group and criticised them. He never, ever worked again. Mel Gibson, you see the same, these people, and then, and what's that saying? You know who's in control because they're the ones you can't criticise, the ones you can't go against. Um, and look who protected Savile. You've got to look at it. When when the BBC uh, self-adjudicated and they said, right, there's nothing to see, move on. How how on earth did that happen? And then, of course, it went on to Operation New Tree. Um, and then from there was Dame, is it Dame Janet Smith, whatever, who took on the the, the case, Dame Janet so-and-so. She took it on. And, of course, it went on to be, this is a monumental failing. Um, BBC didn't want their Christmas special being disrupted. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I know, it's, it's amazing. And also when, um, uh, his name will come to him in a minute, who was the Director General of the BBC, and again, he did the same thing as Esther Ranson, put it out to, we, you know, we need to learn lessons and this must never happen again. I thought, no, you knew. You would have been told. You would have had threats. People would have come around and threatened to smack, burn down broadcasting house. Without a doubt, without a doubt, there would have been death threats made. Now, if that woman, Janet Cope, his PA, opened all his letters, right? Well, she would have opened one. This man's a pervert. He's a sicko. She would have done. No two ways about it. And when he went places, he the, the abuser in shouted out. It would have been, and she would have heard it. And so I, I don't believe her for one minute. I really don't. Uh, this guy was he was connected, and he 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 was just clever on what he did. I'm surprised no one put a bullet in him. To be honest, I'm so surprised. So John, I'm curious though, because I've got a question about how information flows throughout the police force you can probably answer this with your experience and expertise so he's throwing his lunch club for the Leeds cops and my understanding is there was a cop in the Leeds jurisdiction that if there was any complaint anywhere in the country the complaint then got sent to this cop who was Jimmy's friend yeah it's it's called a Spock a single point of contact right so what you understand is the police is compartmentalised so, for example, when I was on Vice, any information that, that came in in the form of intelligence would get sent straight to Vice. Um, so the uniform officer would say, we think there's a brothel here. Goes, and they weren't allowed to deal with it. So they, it would come to us and we would then protect it so no one else can look at it. Right? So that's how it works. It gets protected. Now, we had an intelligence server that no one else could look at. Because what they said, if people looked at it, some officers might think, oh, there's a brothel down in the my road, I might pop in there. Or it might be that we'd have to put on it when we're paying attention to a certain brothel. Um, there was one guy, he used to like prostitutes. And uh, someone tipped him off one day and said, look, we know you're popping in, don't pop in there next week because it's going to be... He was giving the heads up on it, things like that. When it gets... So this is where it gets sinister. So you would, back in the day, there was a form called a 5020, and it was an intelligence form, right? And you'd, you'd when you got some information on someone, you'd write, say, for instance, seen Sean Atwood today, they'd want anything. Does he smoke? What was he wearing? 
what brand of cigarettes is where does he drink who's he drinking with and all this we put it on there any information on Sean out please let us know so write it down and it goes to what's called the LIO the local intelligence office and then they disseminate it right now there's called a thing called flagging right now it might be that you go, especially like back in the day when you were involved in, in that narcotics world, you would have gone for the, there would have been information about you as a nuclear and a black, this English guy's coming and he's selling a bit of this. And the local cops would be interested very much so, but then it would go to a federal level. So in the, in the police, it would go to the national level or it would go to the drug squad and things like that. And they would flag you. So they'd say, any information, please let us know. Don't stop the guy. Let him run. Right, and that's what they'd say. Oh, we got something. Let him go. When it gets really serious, right? So it went from being handwritten. Then it, then it had to then went onto a computer system. So went on. But when it got really serious, and this is when I started the stuff I got involved with. We started uh, bringing into play the people that Savile would have been involved with the political realm and the members of the the big families and things like that. They'd say, no, 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 you can't put it on the computer, right? No one's to know, you've got to handwrite it. So you have to handwrite this thing and it has to be locked away and then it has to be hand-delivered, right, to a certain person. And then that spot, that single point of contact, they would take it off you and then, so no one else can see it. So it then gets sterilised very quickly. And if it goes in a bin, it goes in a bin. And see what was happening to me, I was told... This goes in the bin. No, no one will ever know about this, you know. And, and this is what happens, and that's how they stop it ever, ever happening. Um, if you become an informant, you are then given a pseudonym name. So you'd go from being known on the street as Sean Atwood. That is your name, but the police will know you. Say as Jimmy Smith, right? And then any information, if there was a chance meeting or whatever happened, you'd, you'd fill out. They used to call them a blue form. You'd fill out this form. And it goes to your informant handler, who would then deal with that. And the information you gave, but it'd all be done very clandestine, you know, on people. And then you'd work out how much information you've given. Will it result in a prosecution? If so, how much money you're going to get? And then you'd be working. And they'd allow you to work in crime. They would allow you, because part, part of the criteria back then was you could take out the competition. You could take out a competition. And when, when they screwed up was a guy called Delroy Denton, who was a yardie, when the yardie man come over in, in the 80s and started what they call the crack wars. Uh, very interesting with the crack wars because they're all political. That was all down to a guy called Siagas, who was the uh, head of the JLP in Jamaica, uh, you know, political party. And it was all funded. I mean, and, and a lot of these uh, yardies were soldiers. They were proper soldiers and went on to become government hitmen. And they came over here to sell crack to raise funds for the JLP. And Siagas, he was a white guy that was politically had a lot of clout in Jamaica. Uh, and so it, it was, it, honestly, it, there's a, a book called, I think called Crack Wars. It's fantastic. And there's a guy called Victor Headley, who's a, uh, um, an author. And he writes, a, there's a film called Yardi and Yash. They, they're brilliant. And they've gone about the political motivation behind the early now it's just chaos but back then it it, it had a, anyway so there was one guy a jamaican guy called delroy denton and he, he actually murders someone but he's got all this top-notch information so the police decide to ignore it and run him as an informant 
but he's a hitman. He's like a, a JLP-sponsored hitman, and he's just given up minor-level drug dealers so he can make more money. So he's actually manipulated them, and it caused huge embarrassment, and it, it the whole thing collapsed. And there's another guy called Bertie Smalls, which is a quite well-known informant. Bertie Smalls, that's why grasses get called Bertie Smalls. So when you, you look at that, it, it becomes the tail wagging a dog. And some of these people, they're clever, they're very manipulative, you know, they, they know how to, especially if, if you've got quite a weak minded copper, you've got an ego driven copper, or you've got a copper likes a little bit of Charlie and something, a little bit there for you, mate. No worries. But it's all seen and noted and it will all be used. And it has been used many, many times. The, uh, there's a book called The Untouchables and they go on about the, um, uh, regional crime squad based in, uh, uh, sort of, um, Oh, Dulwich, East Dulwich in London. And one of the guys, he was only the detective constable, but he was such a charismatic guy. He was actually running the unit and he was involved with a, a gangster's wife and they were doing cocaine together and she was using that information to manipulate him and the tail then wags a dog. And I think this is what Jimmy Savile was doing. He is the tail that wagged the dog. And he knew people, he had a gift, in my opinion, of knowing people's weaknesses. And it would be a sexual weakness. So he knew that these guys went to eat and went to Radley College, went to Winchester, and he knew they're going to like a little bit of spanking little boy. I'm going to, I'm going to get on one of that, you know? And when it come on top, he would call in his, his friends from the Satanic Lodge or whatever it was he was involved in. Bear in mind, look at the reigns list. I've gone about all the time. You look at the reigns, it's a who's who of the political and, and the entertainment world. Now there's people high up there. I mean, there was the guy that was running the vice unit. He's on the reins list. His name is on it. And he gets asked his opinion in the BBC documentary about Jimmy Savile. And there's this ex-detective. I'm not going to name him because I w- just watched the documentary. Watch the police sources. They're dirty. And this one guy is so dirty. He's named on the reins list. And he's given his opinion on Savile and how Savile got away with it this is how it works it's all there it's all there again they say hidden in plain sight right what do the masons call it veiled in allegory you know that's their thing right now um every one of his interviews he's doing that karmic thing to get rid of the karmic debt he's telling them what he is he's telling them all through it, he's there. I'm a trumpet man and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's not a girl school I'm not feared. And, you know, my co- my case gets up. I mean, he's, he was constantly, in his early days in the 50s, up on a charge. And he pays his way out of it. And he knew back then what the police wanted. I say, watch, again, he's from West Riding. Watch Red Riding. Red Riding trilogy about where Shorkshire police. And it goes on about the police corruption, child murder, uh, business, money, police corruption, it, and, and it goes on about the Yorkshire Ripper, and it goes on about um, Savile and all that. It's all on there. It's probably the best telling documentary. But what you've got to do, you've got to use discernment and intelligence when you watch these things and not always take it literally. But it's there. They are telling. And this is all um, th- th- these really clever psychiatrists and psychologists doing these criminal profilers. The person is telling them everything by how they sit, how they dress, and what they say. They're telling them everything, but it's knowing. 
picking up on it, picking up on it. And I say, I, I from watching uh, these things, I've picked up on so much of those uh, one minute standing by him and the next minute they're not. I mean, when he's on Have I Got News For You, um, you can see Diane Abbott's face. You know, Diane Abbott's on there. She is disgusted by the guy. She she is not happy being near him. And I'm thinking, as much as she takes a good ribbing for being a bit thick, um, she was on ball. She was on point. She's absolutely appalled by him. And then he walks into the, um, he's in his 80s. He walks into the Big Brother house and they're all over him, aren't they, you know? Oh, Jimmy, uh, they know what he is, a lot of them. Michael Barrymore's there. Barrymore. You know, again, I mean, you know, Stuart Lubbock, I knew Stuart Lubbock's um, dad. I knew him, you know. Um, I used to have quite a few conversations with him before he died. Um, and I knew the guy that that went on to write a book with Stuart Lubbock. I know them very well, you know. And I'd, uh, uh, I've had input, let's say, on, on, on these things. We had you know. Stuart Lubbock's wife on the podcast. All oh, right, bless, bless, you know. But I, I knew his dad, it, it, it destroyed mm. his dad. And he never gave up, the old boy, never gave up. You know, and he'd say, I think he died last year or early part of this year or whatever. But, um, you, you know, Barrymore again, I just, I, if, if ever you want to watch something, watch Come Dine With Me with Barrymore and you'll see what a person he is, right? Um, I think he's DID. I think he's multiple personality because you see, you actually see his personalities change on that program. It is, he's around, I think, Pat Sharp's house. And he, he actually frightens Pat Sharp. He starts smashing plates. He's gone. He's gone. Absolute weird, right? And they can't wait to get rid of him. It's really interesting. That's why I know the idea. And then they do it around his house, but he doesn't go to his house. He goes to someone else's house, this big palace. And he talks like he's from the aristocracy. He starts by behaving like Prince Charles. It, it's freaky to watch. And he's not even joking. I thought, oh, he's going to break this. This is a joke. It's not... It was one of his split personalities. That's why I think this guy has got DID. Do you know that he's making a comeback on TikTok or claiming to and the media yeah, some of the yeah. media are like trying I've to push it. him back in? I've seen it. He was on this morning dog. or something recently as well. Yeah, I've seen it. With trying him. to like bring him back. Yeah, you you see him a lot around that he lives in Acton. You see him a lot in Acton with his little dog and all that. And uh yeah, he's uh but well, you know, I don't know how long he's gonna live, but he's going to his grave. You know, a man with a lot of the dark secrets. I wouldn't want to be him on his deathbed. You know, he knows what he's done. And again, the, the cover-up in that part of Essex, it, it's it's disgraceful. There's, um, is it Melanie Leahy, the lady? Uh, Melanie, I, I, I apologise if I got your name wrong. Um, I'm sure the name's Leahy. She's her son. Uh, it was the same investigative team. Her son was in a mental institution in that part of Essex, um, and they claimed he committed suicide. But but he's, he'd been he'd been mm. before, and there was and he was telling his mum, "Look, this place isn't. There's things go on that's not nice." And the cover up, and it was the same copper, mm. same copper that was involved in in covering that up was was involved in the um in the Barrymore thing, and it's um and Barrymore after that incident he ended up having to go to a, a hospital for for an emergency treatment on his you, you know, and the, the guy had 
The coroner's report on it said that he had his Stuart Lubbock had the aperture of an orange and it was as if a heavy trauma by a fish-shaped object. So, you know, they did the guy. And then all this chucked him in the pool and brought him out. And apparently there was a huge thermometer uh, that was indicated, a big like swimming pool thermometer, which was sort of, and that went missing. And it was all weird, weird stuff went happen on what they call that golden hour, that critical hour when the police should have been getting if evidence was getting lost. It was, it wasn't bagged up. It was, it was, it's rubbish. It's a, it's a bit like when you look at the Detroit case. Uh, when when you look at uh, Europe, it, it's run on a Napoleonic system where, where the local magistrate will control the investigation. And they had one of the, one of the most experienced murder investigating magistrates on it. He was removed. Bear in mind, this was the biggest murder inquiry Belgium ever had. He was removed, and a guy that was put on was had never ever investigated a murder in his career. And he later on went on to marry Detroit's wife. And you think, and again, the same thing: procuring children, child murders. It's the weirdness that goes on. You've only got to listen to to the um, uh, the, the crime theories that we've been doing for your channel, and uh, you know we we highlight these bizarre anomalies. And and Savile is just one huge bizarre anomaly. You know, through and through, the the weird allegations that that, that he, he makes. You know, he says oh, that he's never had a girlfriend, and or, or he's had eight million girlfriends, but not not never got married. And the weird thing around his mother, he calls her the Duchess, doesn't he? And then he sort of um, hates children, and they should be killed at birth, and it, it, horrible. It just the whole thing was bizarre from start to finish with him. And and he, you know how he dressed, it was totally inappropriate. He would wear, you know, them little shorts and things like that. He would undress it. Every comment he makes is lured and sexually suggestive. And why did no one smash his face in? That's one thing that gets me. Why did he never get his head punched? Um, and, and again, the one other thing that really confuses me, and maybe someone, because I've got respect for these people, why did the Royal Marines adopt him? The Royal Marines carried his coffin. They gave him an honorary Green Beret. You know, they're, they're, they're stand-up guys. I work with you know, a couple of good fellas. I say I did a lot with one of their one of their top guys. And what's all that about? Maybe a couple of them can can ring in and sort of uh, or, or message you or me and and explain what was going on. You know, and uh, do they regret that now? Do they regret bringing him on as an honorary Green Beret, you know? Would, would the royal family have had influence over that decision? Maybe, maybe, you know. Um, well, bear in mind, they couldn't even keep their own son in the Marines. He was kicked out, wasn't he, Edward? So, where Savile was... But, again, he was given the, the, the papal knighthood. He was, you know, he was... Um, Sponsored by uh, Basil Hume, Cardinal Basil Hume. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https... 
forward slash forward slash aura.com aura is a-u-r-a forward slash sean atwood s-h-a-u-n-a-t-t wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info also linked in my description box on this youtube version or scan the qr code on the screen Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. Uh, you know, the head of the Catholic Church for many, many decades into his... into his, this, this is something strange. Basil Hume uh, sponsored him into his private members' gentlemen's club. Well, what's... What's a guy of clergy doing joining a private member's gentleman's club anyway? You know, is it the Athenium or one of them? It's a real top upmarket Mayfair um, private member's club. You know, and Basil Hume invited him, you know, it's a business thing. What's, what's uh, you know, someone high up near the pontiff doing, involved in that circle? It, the whole thing stank. They, they gave him uh, an honorary... Admiralty, didn't they? they the, the Navy gave him this Admiralty sort of um, status and and it, and it went on and on and on and on. And the guy was just an out-and-out out creep. It's, it's strange. But for me, what would explain it would be he was an informant for the intelligence services, Tony Goslin, Anthony Goslin. He's a guy. Please, please listen to Anthony Goslin's uh, interview regarding Savile. It is superb. Absolutely superb. Because uh, there's a guy from the BBC who puts a lot of freedom of information requests in about Savile and just said it was very, very strange. He was good friends with Netanyahu. Um, and the other thing would, that would explain uh, his carte blanche, get out of jail, free stuff was uh, the fact that he was an active Satanist. That would explain a, a huge amount, a huge amount. And he was beneficial to these people because he would keep that flow of kids coming in coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in. He knew where to find them. And, you know, um, and again, you, like you, you mentioned, you know, this good, brave man, Richard Kerr, and he would tell you about how many kids would go missing from, from Kinkora under the nose of the intelligence services. Um, and then what happens when people speak out? They, they get threatened. Um, so we need more people to say that they were threatened and who they were threatened by. That's what we need. Uh, but whether they will or not, you, you can't blame people because they get frightened and they've got their family. I've, I've had someone close to me who uh, constantly saying to me, you know, you was reckless in doing it. You never thought your family when you spoke out, you could have gone to prison, you could have got killed. And that, that's the truth. I could have done. Um, but with me, the more they hurt me, the more I kept going, the more I realized I was onto something. Cause I had this conversation with Jen. I was thinking, What's Russell Brand's wife thinking right now? Oh, yeah. She said to him, look, we've got two kids. We've yep. got another one on the way. Yeah. If you push this, you could get JFK'd. And, but he's gone full on. But I think he's in a life and death battle for his reputation. Uh, I think he's in a world of trouble. I think he's in a world of trouble. Um, and because he's... I, I mean, they say that like, he, he's made no secret that he's had sex with so many women. Well... Does that make it right? I mean, okay, none of them. When I watched that documentary, I was scratching my head thinking, legally, is, is, 
reprehensible what he's done. He's just a, a, a pervert, really. But has he done anything illegal? That's what I was thinking as well. Nothing. Not, yeah. He's done nothing illegal. And if anyone comes forward now, like, like them girls that came forward, uh, even a 16-year-old girl, well, her parents knew what she was doing. She continued seeing him, even if it went to court, if one of the sexual encounters went beyond the point of consent, the case would get thrown out anyway. You know, there's a 2% success rate on historic rape, rape cases anyway. They're not going to get away with that. Um, the CPS would not run with that. Uh, so if anything comes out now, with a good lawyer, he's going to be okay. I, I, w- I would say he's going to be okay. I mean, I did the same thing for Tommy Robinson. I did a, I did a podcast for him when his daughter got sexually assaulted at a, um, mm. uh, what are them things, uh, Centre Parks. And he went and had a word with the guys who did it. And I think he physically had a word with them and he gets arrested. And, um, and I came forward and I set up a campaign to, for people to lobby Bedfordshire police because, how they treated him was wrong. You know, he thanked me for it, you know, but it was the right thing to do because he'd been treated badly. He should have been treated as a victim, as a concerned party. Um, so with information that comes forward, intelligence that comes forward, evidence that comes forward, it has to be managed the right way. You can't go putting it. It's subjudicy. You can't go putting it on the media before it's even been before a court. If, if you talk about an ongoing case, um, you could get done for it, you know, and, and you know that as a broadcaster, it's coming your way until it's in the public domain, then, then it's gloves off, right? Um, so with him, the, the, these girls coming forward and then they put in it on national TV, well, surely the only place for that information was the police. If it was illegal, there was nothing that was said that, that crossed that threshold. What a man of his age is doing with sixteen-year-old girl—it's it, it, just dirty, anyway, you know. And the fact that he he makes a joke about being dirty—what well, does that make it right? No, it don't. It makes you a dog, Russell. You're a dog. You know, Channel Four were paying him to behave like that and yeah, monetizing it and getting yeah. views off it. Yeah, yeah, of course. And you see this all the time. You see this constantly. They they encourage it. They don't do anything to stop it. It's all a big joke until it goes wrong. And then it's like fleas on a cat. As soon as a cat dies, they're all jumping off. You know, that's what he said earlier. Look at those that, that stand up. And then when it gets hot, you see who stands by you then. Uh, so, do you think he's doing the right thing, doubling down and just coming back with a vengeance? No, or do no. you think he's putting his... Keep, keep your mouth shut. That's what I would say. When, when it's this, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut. Duck your nut. Do you, you think know? he could end up like Assange? Yeah, yeah, in a world of trouble. Especially if... You know, he's been involved with big players, you know, where he doesn't know where to stop. You know, the one woman said his eyes went black and he was like that. Now, I don't disbelieve her because I hear that many times. Now, that's that's going down a very demonic route. No wonder he's gone some spiritual enlightenment path because if you're behaving like that, mate, you've got demons. You're in a world of trouble. I think when you're on substances, it opens you up to that demonic energy. Without a doubt, 100%. I think he's in a world of trouble spiritually. I think that's why he's coming forward. He's probably getting a lot of things going on at night uh, because he lived a very demonic, you know. And again... um, I talk about this open now because a lot of people don't agree with me. You know, I'm, I'm like born again Christian. They're like, we don't agree. I'm, I don't care. That's your thing. I'm coming at it from my perspective and I'll try and do it from an impartial legal perspective. My advice to him, keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. 
your ego don't need this, your wife don't need this, you're right in that, Sean, you've got a family there, you've made your money, right? You've stuck your, your winkle in every hole that's been offered to you, right? Call it a day. Just be a good human being from now on. Back away from it all. And, uh, but people can't, they get addicted to it, you know? And they'll find out, then they'll get crushed. And and this is what you're seeing with, 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 with Tate. Do you think he's oblivious to knowing that he's going to get crushed? Or no, he's no, being he's, brave? He's, he's an intelligent guy. Do I you mean, think he's being a bit brave as well, though, by taking them on? Um, yeah, and, and maybe foolish at the same time. Maybe foolish at the same time. Um, unless he's got dirt on some of these people. He probably has. He's probably got dirt on a lot of people. Uh, and there's probably a lot of people that sort of run with him that they're in trouble as well. You know, it, it, it's a straight, it's a dirty world that, that entertainment well, we've thing. Well, seen Schofield, Hugh Edwards, all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Again, again, look at Schofield. I mean, what they're alleging, has he done anything wrong? Well, probably early on, if the kid is under the age of consent, yeah, yeah, massively, but that doesn't seem to be alleged by the boy. Um, and again, it's minor what he's done. He, he shouldn't have done it. A fifth-year-old boy is dirty. You're claiming to be a married guy. I don't like Schofield, and I'm not defending him. I don't like him. Uh, only because, um, well, for many reasons, but one of them, that we needed his help years ago on, on a, a child abuse investigation, and he wouldn't assist. And uh, it made me think this guy's not right, you know. Uh, but that aside, I'm making drawing no inference on, on anything like that. There was this massive, massive media campaign for next to nothing. And I, I don't get it. I think, what was that again, Hugh Edwards? It's nonsense. It's, it's total nonsense. Get, who cares? I think that was a distraction. A huge, huge distraction. Uh, and then the brand thing came out. Well, if you've got something on him, go and kick his door in. Look what, they, look what they've done to Lawrence Fox. Gone and kicked his door in, five of them, because he said, well, carry on, carry on black. Yeah, we can't we can't say that. <laughs> no, I can't. No, no. But I mean, um, you know, it seems to be one rule for one, one rule for another. But um, I, I, I think it's um, what do they call them. It's a bit of a hydra. Um, what's happened with with Russell Brown? I think it's multifaceted. There's there, there's going to be quite a few reasons that this has come about. But I, my advice to him is keep your gob shut now. Put leave it in the hands of your solicitors. Do not dig a deeper hole than what you what you already potentially could be in. Um, shut your mouth now. Now's not the time to be airing your your defence online. No way. No way. Uh, we see Tate doing that and just shut your mouth and duck your nut now, you know? Any lawyer would tell you that. All right, going back to Savile then. So you said earlier that he was extremely intelligent. He had foresight. He was calculating I think he was high up in Mensa, things like that, very yeah. high IQ. There was a time when his facade almost, I thought it was going to break, but he brought a prop with him. And I'm talking about, and this is your life. A banana. They put him on the spot about his relations with women. And just when you think this is going to get interesting, he whips the banana out as if he knew that would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's brought that in in, in advance. To get the crowd on his side. Yeah, a comfort blanket. And again, a banana, very phallic thing to do. You know, and he's smoking a cigar in the building. And, and it, again, it is, it's, it's like a little flashbang over there. Everyone looks over there and then back on me. But what is interesting, that was the Andrew Neil um, interview. And um, what was interesting was when they, um, I think this was the, um, 
this is your life. They interview some guy who knows him. Again, a weird bloke. They're all weird. There was there was no one who who stands up for this guy that that looks all right. That all look weird. You know, you wouldn't let babysit your, your kids. Like the all like belonging episode yeah. of Benny Hill. And and uh, exactly. And and this guy was saying, "Oh, uh, Jimmy did like the young girls." And it was inference, inference, inference. His whole spiel was inference. And then he goes on about a hotel they go to and. And then he said as if he regretted what he said. Yeah, he yeah. said, oh, but I mean, they were the proper age. They were at yeah, least 16. Uh, yeah. But then Savile makes a, makes a threat to him. Yeah, well, your wife. Oh, yeah. Did she know? Yeah. And you can see he's making a threat. And and it, again, when the veil drops, and that, that's probably how he went through. He probably went through his life threatening people. I know. I had this um, from two people. One, one was a copper back in about circa 2005 when I was in that epicenter of 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 inquiries right um we're doing stuff with the unit i'd heard about savile uh what you heard that that he was very much into children very much into children um i'd heard that i heard that from two two police sources that he was a right i heard that and then i heard it from a from a gangster from from someone heavily involved in Big, serious, organised crime, right? This was a guy that had stuff to do with the the, the Brinks Mac Gold. Um, and he told me, he said, Savile is a nasty, vicious gangster. He told me, he said, he's a gangster. He said he, he, he would used to batter people in his nightclubs and things like that. So he's a very dangerous gangster. Because he even talked about tying someone up to Louis Ferro, didn't yeah, he? He yeah. took someone down into the basement. Yeah, this was, this was, this was a, 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 a Proper villain, this was, told me this. He said, that guy's a gangster. And he said, the part of the world he's from, he said, he, he's he's an organised criminal. Uh, you know, and he probably found that this this was a source that these people wanted the young girls. And I would have thought that in them clubs, he, look, um, years ago, there was a guy that was known as the King of Soho, right? Uh Maltese fellow, it was all run by the Maltese, and this guy he said he owned about a third of the the uh, Shaftesbury Avenue was his, and place like Old Compton Street, he knew enough owned every single property. And what he would do is he would always make out as a cleaner. If the police came, he'd pick up a broom, and no speaker to English, and you know, and he was the one that was paying off the the, the coppers. But he told me because I got to know this guy. And he said, I used to keep a note of who I paid. He said, back then, he said, John, they were getting £1,000 a week. He said, I'm talking the 70s. He said, he took me into, and he owned, in Great Windmill Street, he owned an Italian uh, restaurant. It was a big front, you know. And he had a fridge. And he said, when the coppers come in here for a drink, never charged them. And they can, there were crack smoking going on in this place and everything. And he showed me the freezer and he went, they come in. The warrant cards go in there, the freezer at the bottom. So if the police raid it, they got no idea on them. And the next day they come back and they get their cards off them. Uh, but he he would give the police all free drinks, free alcohols. And this was in the 90s, he was still doing it, you know. He said, I always let them, you know, in there and there's women coming here and there's all. He was doing the same. He was building up his protection, exactly the same thing. So I knew how this works, you know, and I know why they do it, you know, and, and a lot of them, they like having the police around them as well. 
They do. They like it. You know, it, it, there's a safety in it. It's a bit like knowing a mechanic or knowing a plasterer or knowing a plumber. It's good to know. You <laughs> keep them on your side. It, we all work the same. It's called retroprocity. I do you something, you do me something, you know? And coppers like these gangsters. They do. We sit all the time because they like that lifestyle. They like the free drinks. They like the women. They like being around it. They like it. And it's been a fall of many a copper. And we've seen many go under because of that. We saw it in the, in the Stoke Newington corruption case and all sorts of ones. Um, and again, with Operation Countryman. And, and of course, they're getting backhanders. You know, they're raiding places and whatever they find is theirs. We're always yeah. telling the kids not to get gangsteritis. I never heard of the cops getting gangsteritis. That's interesting. They do. They, 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 yeah. they, they get caught up in it all. Um, a, a guy, he was an undercover cop. Um, I, I, I've tried to get him on it, but he, he, he's very active still in, uh, in Africa and places like that. So he, he won't be, he, he's brilliant. He's probably the best cop I've ever worked with. He, he was a full time undercover guy and he said you know scotland yard's undercover unit he he, he said what a bunch of he called them all he said they all thought that they were millwall football hooligans <laughs> he said they'd all walk around all right son all right mate and he said that it was like a scene from the football factory <laughs> and, and they all because they thought that they were they were <laughs> like them guys uh, you know, because they had a job infiltrating the football uh, hooligans. And he said they all thought they were like from Bermondsey. He said they weren't some of them from Gloucestershire and Wiltshire. And, but he said, you can't believe the ego. They're totally, and that's what he said, when you go into to that, to their floor on uh, wherever it was at Scotland Yard, he said, uh, he said, he said, well, you, you, you'd laugh. He said, they'd make you sick seeing these lads. They're so full of their own ego because mm. they got in with all the faces and all this you know, it, there's a glamour in it, you know, yeah. and there's a lure to it all. And I think he did that in his early days with the nightclubs. He got the coppers on board. You lot, you drink for nothing. You drink for free. And afterwards, look, there's a lot of alcohol, alcoholics in, in the military and in the police. They're easily bought. Coppers are easily bought. Mm. And then, of course, you've only got to start putting a few girls in there. You know, whatever goes on, goes on, you know. What, what happens on tour stays on tour. They're in your pocket, they're in your pocket. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why I think I got through things because there was nothing these people had I wanted. I didn't, I didn't want that. My stepdad was a hard man. He was a hard-fighting man. And he was. He, he, I, say, I say it in my book, he chinned a cow, you know, once. And <laughs> he was a tough guy. And I knew what a tough guy was. But what these people were, they're not tough, you know. They're dysfunctional and they're broken. And their home lives are chaotic and their children get in trouble. And how's that, how's that serving your, your, I think about the only testimony I've ever heard of, of a gangster, what you call a gangster, that I think that I'm not saying I like the guy. I have met him. I'm not saying I like him on that, but I think there's something honorable and something intelligent about it was, uh, Freddie Foreman who turns around and said, that he did what he had to do, so his kids went to private school, and uh, the worst thing to do is bring your family up in poverty. And when I when I listen to that, I think, in the, I get that, I get that. You're a mercenary, that's what you are, and and you're a businessman at the same time. And out of all these sort of gangsters that have given these things, I'm not interested. But that guy, he struck me as being different because there was a bit of honour in what he was doing. But all these others, their kids end up. You know, look at the the Fraser 
family, you know, they and they've done a hundred years prison between them. Well, well, that's a failure. It's nothing to boast about. Hundred mm. years stuck in a cell with another man in shit, and, you know, it's all wrong. Uh, so, you know, what we're on about is is dysfunctionality and and all this. So, I, I think he he worked out his tradecraft early on, and and I think there's definitely something very occultic about this guy. I reckon it was his mother. I reckon she was probably involved in witchcraft. Um, he's, I reckon he was, he, he was some sort of, um, she, she had done a pact with the devil or something. Hence his, his recovery on two occasions. Um, there, there was also things about when he worked down the mines, they reckon he would come up with no dust on him and bizarre things were going on. And they, they used to refer to him as being a wizard, didn't they? And stuff like that. So there was all, and he looked it as well. He looked he it. Did. And, and something very sexually perverse about him. He was still sexually active in his 80s. Now, there, there's uh, an infamous wretched serial killer of young children uh, uh, and an abuser called Sidney Cook. And th- one of the investigation team at the uni used to tell me when they used to do these these visits to, to Sidney Cook in prison, he was, I think he was pushing his 80 year and he was 18 times a day so so again with that sort of abuse and things like that there would be this over sexualization and things like that he clearly displays that um and everything is allured you know not not befitting of a man of his age you know and it's just strange so yeah i have people never picked up on it but but my my main gripe with him is how he never ever got his face smashed in I, I, I'm, I'm confused about that yep just to touch on a few other things here then so Savile lived with his mother whom he referred to as the Duchess and kept her bedroom and wardrobe exactly as it was when she died every year he had her clothes dry cleaned yeah we saw that on the Faru thing it is it's, it's necromancy he's worshipping her in her death I mean what would be the benefit of doing that She's never going to wear them. Um, why is he still venerating the woman? It's, it's odd. It's weird. Um, I think the one really to ask about that would be someone like Corinne, who, who understands the twisted, sexually depraved, murderous mind. And I mean, it, there clearly is. That's a mental health issue there, isn't it? It's um, very, very strange. Very it's strange behaviour. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm curious then, you know, we touched on the royal family earlier. The official version, Savile met Prince Charles through mutual charity interests. His work with Stoke Mandeville Hospital made Savile a suitable figure to whom the prince could turn for advice on navigating Britain's health authorities. Charles met Savile on several occasions. In 1999, Charles visited Savile's Glencoe home for a private meal and reportedly sent him gifts on his 80th birthday and the note reading, nobody will ever know what you have done for this country, Jimmy. This is to go some way in thanking you for that. Savile was also in contact with other members of the royal household and received telegrams from Diana, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, a handwritten letter from Princess Alexandra's husband, Sir Angus Ogilvy, and a homemade card from Sarah, Duchess of York, he acted as unofficial advisor to Prince Charles, who sought his advice on a number of occasions and how the royal family ought to interact with the public and media. 
In 89, Savile hand wrote an unofficial set of guidelines to Charles on how members of the royal family and staff may respond to disasters. Charles showed the dossier to his father, Prince Philip, who passed the contents on to Elizabeth II. There's no mention there of Mountbatten. And I have, doing our research, we believe that it was Mountbatten that brought him into the royal fold. Yeah. Well, Mountbatten, I've heard his name mentioned uh, probably as many times as I've heard Ted Heath's name mentioned regarding um, it, he clearly is caught up in the Kinkora scandal, Mountbatten, um, and the procuring of children, you know, from that home and taking them over to County Sligo and County Donegal, which he, where he both had places out there. So I've, I've spoke to one person who, who actually saw Mountbatten at a ritual and things like that. So his name crops up all, all the time, all the time, which would then uh, sort of put strength to the to the rumour that, that Savile was heavily connected to Satanism. And this is a glue that holds this together. Same as Freemasonry. How do these people know each other? Well, through Freemasonry, you know. I was talking to a guy um, only yesterday who came to see me, um, and he said that he, he through his work, he joined... Um, he was pushed to join join the Masons and was in them for a while. But he joined uh, uh, one of the ranks in there called the Royal Arch, right? It's one of the orders of Freemasonry, he said. And he, he goes through about the ritual in it. He said they put all these flags down and they put loads of rocks on the floor in this one of their temples. And, and he said he was uh, marched down there, made to kiss a Bible, but it was the Masonic Bible. And he said, as soon as he did it, all of them in there. And he said, one guy was very high up in the police in, in respect to uh, diplomatic protection and things like that. And he said, they all put their hands up and said, hail Baphomet three times. Now, Baphomet is this horned, androgynous, satanic god. And he said, we were made to say that three times. How about? I mean, clearly satanic, you know. Uh, and this is how these people know each other through these things. And, and again, that, that's how they know each other. And of course, if, if he's, if he's fueling, uh, Mountbatten, cause Mountbatten had a massive appetite for young boys. And, and that's, look, the FBI just released two years ago their files on him. And they clearly stated to British intelligence, this man should have nothing to do with any decision making within the military forum. But the British government allowed him to be Admiral of the Fleet and all these, all, uh, yeah, all these accolades he was given. And, and they said him and his wife were as deplorable as each other. And they reckon they spent more time in other people's beds than they did their own. You know, he, he liked young boys. He, he was, you know, a, a homosexual, child-loving, minor-attractive person. Yeah, and they knew it. I mean, the FBI knew it. You can't tell us that our intelligence services knew it. Well, well if you look at Colin Wallace's thing, he goes on about all these people that are involved. It's no secret anymore. That's why we can talk about it now. Uh, and th this is, why did it take all these years for it to come out with Mountbatten, you know? Uh, and why did it take all these years to come out about Savile? Now, if we go back to, to what Putin said about British politics becoming a bunch of perverts and things like that, well, maybe that would be because it's, it's got influence. And other governments might... I mean, you've got, for instance, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, right? The uh, former president of the Philippines. Now, Rodrigo Duterte said, right, 
we're not going to waste government money, taxpayers' money, on trials for We kill them. So he put out a warning to sex tourists, if you come here, you come to, to my country, and you are with children, you die. That's it, you die. Now, he was then attacked um, by the Pope. Said, you know, you're a Catholic nation, what are you doing making these death threats? And he said to the Pope, you are the son of a whore. And he said, um, your priest came to my country uh, with the Americans. The Americans turned our women into prostitutes and you, your, your priest abused our boys, of which I was one because he was abused by a priest. And, oh, yeah, and, and he said, will die in my country. Now, um, he was recently, I think he'd teamed up with Putin. They were seen together and things like that. He was loved by his people. They absolutely loved him because it controls global politics. It controls global politics and they know it and the intelligence services know it. And it's a simple answer. You know, it's a simple, we must simplify this. We must look at who benefits and what is the, the most simplest explanation. Look, if it looks like a dog, it barks like a dog, it's a dog. Savile looked like a child abuser. He behaved like a child abuser. He even admitted in, 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 in an allegorical way being a And look what went on in Duncroft School for Girls and things like that. And what got me was how many people um, had cognitive dissonance around him. No nurses and things like that. They, when he was a children in hospitals, and he was in them in hospitals, they turned their backs. One of them told the patient, "Oh, it's just Jimmy. That's what he does. Yeah, you yeah. need to keep your mouth shut, or I'll we'll yeah. get in trouble." Yeah, turn their backs on it. It's, it's, you know, there's what can you do with an attitude like that? Do you think he was tipping us off about his Masonic involvement by the way he structured his funeral? I'll, I'll go over this. Um, on 29th of October 2011 Savile was found dead at his penthouse flat overlooking Round Hay Park in Leeds two days before his 85th Halloween birthday he had been in hospital with pneumonia and his death was not suspicious his closed satin gold coffin was displayed at the Queen's Hotel in Leeds with the last cigar he ever smoked and his two This Is Your Life books Around 4,000 people visited to pay tribute. His funeral took place at Leeds Cathedral on the 9th of November 2011. He was buried at Woodlands Cemetery in Scarborough. As specified in his will, his coffin was inclined at 45 degrees to fulfil his wish to see the sea. The coffin was encased in concrete as a security measure. Is that a tip to the Freemasonic? Probably, without a doubt. I mean, again, what mentality so he could see the sea? Well, you're dead. I mean, it's an intelligent man. Why is he making so I can see the sea? It's like these idiots that come out with, I want to be cremated because I don't want worms crawling in my eyes. Well, you're dead. I mean, what are you on about? You're dead. You know, so, so earthly wants don't exist. And, and of course, when his... Um, uh, headstone went up, it got smashed, you know, straight away smashed. And Glen Coe, they, they, they wrote Beast all over it, 666 and Beast written all over it. And who else was in Glen Coe? Um, what's his name? Um, who's that, that wretched individual? Alistair Crowley. 
he had a residence there as well, you know. Uh, they, these people all know each other. And I think he had a lot to do with the Beatles as well, didn't he, Jimmy Savile? A lot to do with the Beatles. He helped them uh, get famous, didn't he? Yeah, and of course, so did Crowley. Yeah. Uh. So one of the ways this came about, the expose, was the Duncraft approved school for girls. Oh, yeah, Survivors, did you hear anything about those yeah. women? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, 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 they were classed as highly intelligent and maladjusted girls, weren't they? And he was taking them out for trips and he was getting them to walk him off and things like that, you know, in the car and, and stuff like that. It's just disgraceful, man, you know. And it, it, doing it tomorrow, it, but he was doing it. See, the one thing, like with these minor attracted persons, they call them trisexual. They're not straight, they're not bisexual, they're not, not homosexual. They will try anything. They call them, they, if they they like a six-year-old girl, that a 14-year-old girl would do. If there's not a girl, they'll have a boy. They're, they don't care, but they'll have, a, they'll have a, a liking. This guy liked young girls. And, you know, and one woman came to me very early on when I started doing my campaigning, and, and she told me that there, there was uh, three kids. She was one of them. were taken to a party. And it all went a bit weird. They were drugged. And when um, she sort of comes to, uh, they're doing CPR on one of the little kill girls because they've been killed. And she said it was Savile was helping. They were panicking because this girl had died. And then Savile said, well, I, I know what to do with her. Uh, I know where to take her. Um, and it, it, of course, the woman was young and she was drugged at the time. She said, but I always remember it was him. It was him, so... I've got a quote here when he defended Gary Glitter. In a 2009 interview with his biographer, Savile defended the views of viewers of videos of kids, as in, you know what I mean, including pop star and convicted offender Gary Glitter. He argued that viewers didn't do anything wrong, but they are then demonised. Why do we even entertain this? Why do we? But people did. They knew what this guy was doing, you know. Someone should have said, oh, come on now. He said that Glitter was being unfairly vilified for watching dodgy films in the privacy of his own home. Gary has not tried to sell them, not tried to show them in public or anything like that. It were for his own gratification. Whether it was right or wrong is, of course, it's up to him as a person. Well, well, look at at that. He's totally diluting the severity of of that level of pornography pornography and he's actually saying that it's not an issue i mean what's the matter with the guy he's it's it's wrong you know he's sugarcoating it it's it's disgraceful and disgusting and each film that's a victim and as we know people that survived this sort of abuse they go on to have long-term if not lifelong psychological and and suicidal issues majority of them End up in prison and drugs and Everything, drugs, prison, dysfunctional family life, domestic violence, all sorts. Because someone like Gary Glitter wants to watch a film. of, um, But even to get gratification in watching that, that's a twisted, broken, you know. And where does it stop? Where does it stop? Is it just the abuse? And then, again, look at films. You know, the British government, even to this day, deny the existence of them. It's a lie. 
they know they know damn well that, that, that they occur. They know exactly that they occur. And, and the Dutch police are very open about it. And the Dutch police have said that films do. We've got we've seen many of them, and so many involve British children. And they, they made a statement as a detective from the Dutch police came out with that. So they're all linked in. And the one thing that that you find with these people is that organised. You've interviewed a lot of gangsters, right? How many of them know each other? They all know each other. They do. They all know each other. Now, I'm not in any way, I'm only drawing a simile to this, and I'm not putting any of them in that category. But these are criminals. They know each other. Because it's their network. And, and same as coppers, they all know each other. Do you know, oh, yeah, I know him. Because no. it's that world, your network, you... you Doctors will be the same. Glitter, Bill. Rolf and Savile, what a trio. I mean, what, what what, a gang, what a gang, you know? You know, unbelievable, you know? And Rolf, they had them all on some Christmas special, didn't they? And and who put them in there? That's what we've got to look at. Who enables this and who fails to prevent it? Going, you know, getting dealt with. Who covered up the Surrey police? The Surrey police, they didn't just do it once. They screwed up when it come to the Bishop Ball inquiry because th- that's where it ended up. But sorry, please, constantly, 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 you see them screwing up. I'm not saying that any of the others are any better because they're not. But but sorry, please, got a bit of a history here of this, you know. And uh, someone that was involved in my silencing went on to become very high up in sorry, please. So you do see them gravitating towards the same same areas all the time. You know, and, and epicenters, you know, and um, that there, there's uh, a book called Dances with the Devil, and it's written by a woman called Audrey Harper. Um, she was a Satanist, and then she went to Jesus. She's written a book. I don't know if she's still alive. She was on a Roger Cook documentary uh, about, uh, and and she goes on about um, she was London based, but all the rituals were being sorry. Mm. And there will be detectives there and everything. All around Virginia Water mm. was the place. Virginia Water, as she said, was the epicenter of it all. And again, we see that with, with a few other survivors have always gone on about sorry, 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 sorry. You know, so it, you do tend to see these patterns emerging and emerging all the time. And Dunkoff was in um, Surrey, and they're, they're the ones who, who backed down when Savile threatened them. I mean, who's he think he is? I love taking people to the old Bailey. Yeah. Well, I mean, and putting in, uh, obviously, an inexperienced, weak-minded woman detective who just fell at the first hurdle. Is it okay for we need to call you Mr. Savile? Oh, you call me Jimmy. Yeah. It was, honestly, it's cringeworthy to listen to. Unbelievable. And look. Can you actually listen to it? So I've got the transcript. Yeah, yeah, I'll happily listen to it, yeah. But is there an audio of it? You can, well? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. love to get my hands on, on that. On one, one of the programmes, you, you listen to it and you're like, oh, are you joking me? Are yeah. you joking me? Uh, you know, it's very bizarre. John, he got away with it for over 50 years. He reached the top echelons of politics, yeah. royalty, media, is that not something that could ever happen again because of technology and the internet and people taking pictures and videos and he would have got caught and he would have been put online? Do you think it could happen again, another Savile? Yeah, I think um, with social media and, and people's knowledge of these things, years ago, no one would talk about it, you know, and 
you know, people that, that sexually offended against children as well, they, they used to be, I mean, there was, there was a guy that used to ride a bike near us and he would ride a bike, make lewd comments to us when we were walking to school. And he, he was classed as Soppy Norman. You know, something, well, the bloke was a predatory, dangerous. So, and again, flashes. Flashes are dangerous. And, I mean, and we saw that with um, uh, the, the police officer. What's his name? Um, oh, uh, 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 who's just been put away. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a precursor, isn't it? To worse yeah, things. Yeah, and it's, it's a massive red light. Mm-hmm. And I highlighted this, I think, in a video I did with you. And uh, Mark Rowley who who's now running the Met Police and I, I think he's actually all right to be honest because he he sort of helped me out in me getting out of the police as it were he sort of um come to my assistance and put an end to what was happening so and he turned around and he sort of virtually quotes uh, stuff from our interview uh mm-hmm. when it come to oh what's that guys I can see his face um he, he killed Sarah Everard um Wayne Cousins uh, and he says, you know, we should have picked up on the fact that this guy was a flasher and these are dang- highly dangerous, highly triggered individuals, which they are. So I think in respect to that social media, that's why I think that they do clamp down a bit on people's social media and then they get overzealous with certain things. They go full out on people that are getting a bit anti-establishment. And we, we saw that with one of the GB news presenters this week. And that that is an alarm bell. Um and people sharing information is going to be a big, big problem for them. Uh, that, that's why there's a need to um, try and legalise this sort of sexual offending, which is sort of where they're going with, with, with the um, adding on. The rumours are they're going to add an extra category to the LGBTQ+. And, mm. and I call out to that community and say, do you want to be aligned with these people who offend against children? you know you shouldn't you should stand up and there's a group called gays against groomers which are saying you're you're nothing to do with us power to you my brothers because i think that needs doing um in respect to um what we've got to look at with, with technology is that okay it's good for us to have it and share information but i think if you're on that intelligence service side of it you're going to benefit a lot greater than we will because surveillance doesn't need to be done anymore these tvs have got cameras in them that they can tune into your phone gives everything away i work with ex-offenders now they all get done by their phones the phones give everything away Uh, and then if you you are going to speak out about this they will overzealously do you for something else and we've seen that with a few people who have been speaking out and they've ended up in court and they've been given maximum sentences for very small crimes, you know. And, and we've seen that a couple of times, high-profile cases where people should have got a couple of years and they end up getting 17 years and things like that. Um, and I think this is what they'll do. They will bully you and and hit you so hard that you, that you won't know what's happening. Um, or they will kill you run you over, whatever, um, and, and they'll deal with you that way. Um, and I think 
things have never changed. I think that the intelligence services and, and this hidden hand, the men in grey suits, whatever we want to term it, they adapt to their environment like we adapt to an environment, you know, like any, any new way, like cryptocurrency. Okay. There's no more cash in transit robberies, but there'll be another way of nicking it. So the criminals will adapt and the, and the enforcement teams will adapt. Um, so I, I think it will continue. I think if anything, it will get, it'll get worse. And, and my reason for saying that is that, Years ago, you did have highly trained, highly focused and dedicated detectives. You've got nothing now, nothing. And we mentioned this at the inception of this interview, and I said, any serious and organised criminal, we're well, laughing. You're laughing. And also now with open borders, the trafficking, you, if you look on, on the coastline of Kent, you know, you can 2,000 people come stroll up the beach in high-vis inflatable jackets, and no one stops them. I, I was working uh, with a guy that, that was a rib driver for these organised gangs. He did it for years. They go from Le Touquet in France, 10-hour transit over to Dover, drop people off, never, ever got stopped. Never got stopped by British. So so the, the kids are going to be brought in with the open borders whenever there's conflict, like, like with the Ukraine. Again, there's a need for children. So if we're looking at it strictly for the trafficking of children and kids going missing, it's probably easier than it's ever been. Our communities are broken down now. You know, um, no one pays any attention to anything. I think, and I'm not rubbishing them, but, but the IQ of the youth, I think, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. People can't articulate now. They get more sexualized. Um so I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse. In conclusion then, John, if you think it's going to get worse, can you tell the viewers, especially parents, what they should be doing to protect their kids? Yeah, yeah. Uh, golden rule, men, don't leave your children. Because you leave your children, that's a broken family. A child is 30 times, 30 times, not once or twice, three times, four times, 30 times more likely to be abused in their own home by one factor. Right, and that's the presence of a step parent. Have children under the right circumstances in love. Stick with it. Even if your your relationships are failing, stick with it. Protect your children. Bring them up in a safe, structured, loving environment. That's a golden rule. And you're going to bring up with, with, with an open relationship with your kids that, and trust and, and a stoic robustness. You know that 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 is governed by love. I mean, you you've just brought a child into this world, Sean. How important is that kid to you? How important? A little ball of love, but, but pure love, you know. Yeah, you know. And then you've heard testimonies of people that have seen kids that age, you know. Uh, be a proper parent, and and that is the main thing. Stop abandoning your children, because if if you do, then these dogs are, they're going to target them. Tony Blair brought in a thing called Any Child Matters, and everyone's going, oh, it's a really good thing and all that. No, no, it's the most sinister thing they ever brought in because prior to that, social services were funded independently by the Home Office, right? Now, then they made social services with Any Child Matters self-funding, right? And every time a child gets put in a care system, government releases that funding for that kid. So there, there then is this uh, incentive to get that, care order rolling in order for them to be able to to pay for staff to have the rights to boom 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 so it becomes a priority then to get your kids into care so any sort of like uh quirkiness in the family they're they're an open door for it 
and and so all things like that need need to to be looked at and you know a lot of the, these predatory people i work let, let me let me put it this way sean i worked for many many years with victims and survivors and i worked for many many years with street prostitutes every single street prostitute had come from the care system every single one every single one was on the and they funded it through through that lifestyle they went on to have kids that got put into the care system as well every single child prostitute i dealt with come from the care system right now that's not by chance right and that's through dysfunctionality broken family whatever it is right that an adult does but it's a kid who has to pay that price and suffer and then what is what is there for them the rest of their life Keep your kids out of their care system. Make them number one priority in your life. Educate them, love them, cater for them, and anything second to that, it doesn't matter. That's that. That's my rule. Well said. And and these people like Savile, when his his nephew was saying they were bringing these kids, they were coming from the care homes. They weren't coming from loving, decent families. They weren't. They were coming from dysfunctional, broken, and and kids in care families. And that is it. That's that's the only thing. Thanks, John. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you on socials and get your book? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a, a really decent human being. Uh, well, two actually. One, uh, Johnny Cooper has put together a collage of my, my works in a, a transcript biography. It's called The Great Reveal. It's within, I think, three days of it being released, it hit the uh, bestseller category, bestsellers in three categories. Uh, the great reveal. There's a lot of good stuff in there. It's fantastic. My book is halfway completed now. Um, so that will hopefully be coming out. Social media. I've sort of really uh, people that follow me. They're, they're surprised to see me back on <laughs> on these things because I I got on with my life. I <laughs> I went on to work with ex offenders and, and and very very damaged children. So that's what I've been doing for the last few years. I'm happy doing it, but I, there is a resurgence of me back on social media. Um, just like and follow i'm on facebook i've been doing um uh the videos on the benefits of cold water therapy called psad pantswim against depression uh the winter's coming up so last year i swam every single week of the year in open water in my pants <laughs> to raise the benefits of cold water therapy as a prevention for male suicide so i'm on tiktok under psad hashtag psad john wedger um uh, youtube um and and my website and you're going to see more and more of me coming up and i've, I've done Good. a few bits for for big tv things coming. so all of john's links will be in the description box below this video i'll put the links down there for the half a dozen podcasts we've done with him as well one of them was completely banned off youtube so you've got to go to my rumble for that one but i'll put that link down and also, you must be up to about a dozen of the Crime Theory series with Ron oh, Swanson now. F- crime Theory with Ron Swanson. Oh, they've been fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And look, there's one coming up, and we've solved her murder. Let, I'm going to leave Ron's it at that. Scared. He thinks we're going to be coming for him on this one, over this one. We, we've got to get a bit of a legal advice. I'm going to be um, hopefully talking with, with a constabulary and Crime Stoppers because information is going to be passed on to the police before we release it. Wow. Um, and it will show how all these are connected. And there is a connection with Savile. Wow. There is, we put a connection with Savile out last week, but there's a connection with Savile. So. Wow. Keep up the amazing God work, John. Yeah, Cheers. Love. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.
So, Gadfly Press is hugely proud to announce the publication of Killing Escobar and Soldier Stories by Peter McAleese. If you've not seen our podcast we've done with Peter, check it out. And the book is now available worldwide on Amazon in all formats. And Peter was hired out of Scotland, mercenary by the Cali Cartel, to assassinate Pablo Escobar, one of the most famous gangsters in the history of the world. The mission is all detailed in the book, as well as Peter's many soldier stories from various countries and continents of the world. So, mind-blowing, gripping, as seen on BBC TV. This is the book, the story that Killing Escobar is based on, Peter McAleese's testimony. The link will be in the description box below the video, available worldwide on Amazon. Cheers.